Good afternoon. It's uh, Friday, the 21st of October 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me, oh, joining me by video link, we've got Patrick Henningsen and Vanessa Bailey. Uh, welcome to the programme both. Um, let's get straight on with uh, Liz Truss. Uh, and well, of course, everybody knows by now that she has gone. Uh, and so there she is walking out of number 10. She looked very happy, actually. She had a smile on her face. Uh, and she made her speech to dis explain why it was really all Putin's fault uh, that she couldn't get anything going. And so she's off. Uh, but Patrick, uh, let's uh, move on to this, because what was uh, Medvedev's response? Bye-bye, uh, Liz Truss. Congrats to the lettuce. Uh, what was that about? Well, that was the that was the gag. I think it was the Daily Star. So the British tabloids still have a few, uh, a little bit, uh, a, little, a few tricks in their in their box or whatever but <laughs> medvedev is doing some galactic trolling here of uh, of liz truss and and the british the the daily star put this gag out earlier in the week they put out a head of lettuce and then picture of liz truss and they said which one was going to go off or uh first and it turned out that the lettuce won uh so there's sort of victory lap there by uh dmitry medvedev who's becoming a much more hawkish and animated uh, and a lot of people are saying it's possible he could be one of the candidates to be the heir apparent for uh, Vladimir Putin when he decides to to hang his boots up. But yes. um, incredible piece of trolling. <laughs> we, yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, um, now, let's get on to uh, slightly more serious stuff then. And uh, uh, let's have a look at Keir Starmer here, uh, because he is basically now calling for a general election. Uh, we can't have a revolving door of chaos is what he's saying. Now I'm going to suggest, and I'm going to ask for comments from both you and Vanessa in a second, but I'm uh, going to suggest that perhaps that's exactly what we need at this point. We need to continue uh, this revolving door of chaos because I just want to remind everybody once again about the legislative uh, agenda that uh, really isn't just about the Tory party. This is something else that's going on. So just run through this, uh, this table. Uh, left, on the left-hand column, the, the kind of outcome that we see from the the legislation that we're seeing. So shut down on free speech through the online safety bill, the national security bill, and the counter state threats bill, uh, the outlawing of, of or the criminalization of protest through the police crime courts sentencing act already legislation, but also the upcoming public order bill, uh, free and fair elections ended through the elections act, uh, unaccountable to law, that's the government being unaccountable to law through the judicial review bill, uh, which will b effectively ban people from bringing judicial review of government uh, legislation and so on, uh, and also uh, unaccountable, unaccountable to law through the co sorry the Covert Human Intelligence Criminal Conduct Act, uh, rights removed through the new Bill of Rights, uh, the possibility of citizenship being stripped through the Nationality and Borders Bill, uh, and control of education where the uh, you know the framework of the national curriculum is actually being enforced uh, through the Schools Bill. And just on the issue of criminal conduct, I just want to quickly remind everybody once again, uh, we mentioned this on Monday, uh, for the first time since 2017, the use of covert human intelligence sources by law enforcement agencies has increased uh, in the latest uh, IPCO report. Um, and if we just remind ourselves what this bill was about, it was a bill, now an act, to make provision for in connection with the authorization of criminal conduct in the course of or otherwise in connection with the conduct of human intelligence sources and the fact that that was allowed by all kinds of agencies, uh, any police force, national crime agency, serious fraud office, intelligence services, uh, armed forces, 
Revenue and Customs, Health and Social Care, Home Office, uh, Ministry of Justice, Competition and Markets Authority, Environment Agency, Financial Conduct Authority, the Food Standards Agency, the Gambling Commission, and so on. So we have this swathe of legislation, Patrick, uh, which, as I say, really is not uh, about the Tory party because there's no opposition for it coming from the Labour Party. And therefore, it seems to me that this is more of a deep state policy agenda that's working its way through at the moment. Uh, and in fact, uh, even if there is a change of government, it's not going to make any difference. So we need to push this can down the road. And so we should be welcoming this pantomime that we're seeing at the moment. And if there's a potential of a general election, in fact, that uh, extends that even further. Well, yeah, it depends. You're right. It is a pantomime, Mike. Um, but it also depends on uh, if there is a general election, uh, whether the uh, any part of the labor base will take this issue up uh, with any degree of seriousness. Because if they do, if they can, it could become an issue. It might not be a, an issue that would swing uh, support between uh, Tories or labor, but at least it could get on the labor uh, slate as an issue and be, be spoken about. Because once once this is spoken about in public and it becomes a, a, a priority debate issue, um, then all of a sudden you can at least have a, a national dialogue about it. At the moment, as you as you rightly said, there's nothing because this is very much a deep state agenda. The problem is you have a lot of controlled opposition in some of these mainline protest groups. I'm talking about Extinction Rebellion. I don't see George Monbiot uh, supergluing himself uh, to anything uh, to sort of stop this, which is a total abrogation of uh, the, uh, the rights that, that people have enjoyed in Britain uh, for centuries, or at least on paper anyway. But the, the left might be waking up a little bit about this. I'm talking about some of these other left-wing protest uh, groups that might want to push back against this. But this looks like it was put in place. Possibly the timing of this, Mike, is very much uh, in line with uh, lifting the moratorium on fracking. So I think that's one of the big targets of this t legislation is any potential pushback or in the anti-fracking movement if Britain decides to go ahead and make fracking a national security issue or, or energy security. We've spoken about this in previous programs, but that's that's what my read on why the, the deep state is so concerned about this right now. Yes, uh, thank you for that, Patrick. Now, uh, Vanessa, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this and, and really what the the view from, shall we say, the uh, eastern part of Europe and, and the Middle East would be of, of, I mean, what is the perception of Britain as a result of everything that we're seeing at the moment? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I think in Syria particularly, we're very aligned with Russian opinion. So whatever you're seeing from Russia will be reflected here. And there is a degree of um, let's say, erosion of um, the British image here. Personally, I, this looks to me like a manufactured implosion of the Conservative Party in order to generate the general election. Um, I think getting Keir Starmer elected, he's ahead in, in whatever polls are available at the moment. Um, you know, as, as we've said before, there's no difference between Labour and Conservative, Democrat and Republican, um, they're all under instructions as to what they're here to impose upon the population of their country. And I think with Keir Starmer, 
um, the future is, is way bleaker than continuing with a revolving door policy, which at least will mean that some of the legislation isn't going to be able to, to be concretized or pushed through. So, um, yeah. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. Um, well, let's uh, move on then to the uh, online safety bill because uh, this has been updated today. Uh, the uh, new, uh, well, how long shall last, we'll see, but the new Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, uh, Michelle Donnellan, had this to say, we wanted uh, the online safety bill in law as soon as possible to protect children uh, when they're accessing content online. So they're banging this old drum uh, continue to bang this old drum. If we remember back uh, not that long ago, Nadine Dorries was saying this, our world-leading bill will protect children from online abuse and harm, protecting the most vulnerable from accessing uh, harmful content. Uh, but at the same time then, uh, she was saying, that's why we're strengthening our new internet safety protections to make sure social media firms identify and root out state-backed disinformation. So we get uh, a clue as to what's what the real agenda is here. Uh, now, we've been talking about the online safety bill for quite a long time. It has been about five years since the process uh, of bringing this about uh, began. Uh, but let's just remind ourselves what the main problems uh, with it are, or the key problems. Harmful communications offence. This offence will make it easier to prosecute online abusers by abandoning the requirement under the old offences for content to fit within prescribed, yes, um, yet ambiguous categories such as grossly offensive, obscene or indecent. Uh, Instead, it's based on the intended psychological harm amounting to at least serious distress. So the person who receives the communication rather than requiring proof that harms uh, that harm was caused. So no requirement for proof of any harm anymore under this. Uh, but in, worse than that, the idea of legal but harmful content. Um, so the agreed categories of legal but harmful content will be set out in secondary leg legislation and subject to approval by both Houses of Parliament, as the point we've made many times is, of course, statutory instruments, uh, secondary legislation, uh, notionally laid before Parliament, but usually at a time when there's nobody there, nobody really paying any attention. There's certainly no debate over most statutory instruments uh, as they pass. And so therefore, in the bill as it stands, we're not allowed to know what the categories of legal but harmful content are going to be. Um, now, just to show that this isn't just a UK thing, um, I interviewed Diane Sayre, uh, who is standing for the Senate in, the, in New York, uh, Patrick, uh, a couple of days ago, and that's on the UK column website at the moment. Uh, and we have a short piece of video here, uh, and I'd be very interested in your comments on this uh, as soon as we've seen it. Let's have a listen to this. Um so I, and this is another story. So I've put up some billboards because I want to, I understand Schumer has a very, very thin skin and he's prone to blow up and say crazy things. So I figured if I can't break the blackout one way, I'll break it another by getting under his skin with a bunch of billboards in the New York City area. So I submitted the payment for a very large billboard on what's called the Gowanus Expressway, which goes right through Brooklyn which is where Schumer is from. And I said, I'd like to put on my billboard, stop blaming Putin and look in the mirror and with a picture of Schumer. And the billboard company said, we're sorry, but you're not allowed to say Putin. <laughs> and then they said, while you're at it, you're also not allowed to say Russia, China, or North Korea. 
And it's going to say paid for by Sarah for Senate at the bottom. So the billboard company doesn't have to take any responsibility for this. It's clearly my words, but I'm not allowed to say it. So then I thought, and I didn't want to just demand my money back because I wanted to somehow get my message out there. So I was trying to think of the thing that might enrage these people the most. So my billboard says U.S. out of NATO, which got approved, dump Schumer, vote Diane Sayre. So I encourage everybody to watch the full uh, video, but Patrick, uh, online safety bill, they're trying to get that through as quickly as possible. Hopefully there's gonna be a complete collapse of this government and a general election before that uh, happens. But nonetheless, this is how ridiculous this censorship regime ends up with. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm surprised that the billboard company has that level of uh, censorship. Uh, that they wouldn't allow that. If she had a little more money, she should probably file a lawsuit against the billboard company uh, for that. I mean, this is kind of outrageous that they would, uh, in an election, uh, interfere uh, to that degree that they're censoring the speech uh, of a candidate who's actually paying for the advertising, which is incredible in itself. Um, but yeah, the online safety bill um, in Britain, it, it's, it's funny, if, if, if they tried to pass something like that in France, um, with that degree of uh, detail, um, and, or the 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 protest, the anti-protest legislation as well. These these sort of things in tandem. Looking at this in Britain, and the f funny thing is, the minister is calling this a world-leading bill, a world-leading bill. This is world-leading uh, legislation. I mean, they're they're leading the world in authoritarianism. That's what uh, the the message that's been, being sent out. So it's just pretty unbelievable that it's managed to get this far. Um, but you really have to, again, lay the blame at the feet of a supine uh, mainstream media that uh, doesn't really take any interest in this. Uh, and the reason is, is because the mainstream media is completely controlled at the editorial desk level. Um, so that's why you're not seeing any national conversation pushing back against this, which is a completely kind of outrageous um, attempt by the government to control speech. Uh, indeed. Um, so anyway, if anybody wants to uh, see the sort of how this developed uh, over the years, if you have a look on the UK column website, uh, scroll down a little bit, you'll find uh, this block which says censored. If you click on that, uh, you'll come to a timeline uh, which absolutely shows how we got to this point and maybe you get an idea of where we're heading in the not too distant future. Uh, but Vanessa, uh, if we stick on uh, freedom of speech and so on, uh, in Paris, uh, there have been uh, uh, protests not only against uh, cost of living rises, but also against it's apparently uh, NATO and uh, the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, these protests um, under various guises have been ongoing since 2019 and have been completely or almost entirely blacked out, particularly by British media but even by European um, media since the Yellow Vest, the Gilets Jaunes um, protests began back in 2019. And I attended, of course, many, a, a couple of the um, Gilets Jaunes marches and, and effectively um, experienced the police, uh, I, I mean, Gestapo-style um, policing in Paris and in other capitals or, or other cities in uh, France. Um, and in my view, this also connects into the report that I'm, I'm going to be doing just after on Israel, 
um, it's worth pointing out that um, there is collaboration between uh, U.S. police and uh, Israel as regards the training of the methods to be used against mass protest. And there is an indication of the same collaboration in France. And certainly when you see the video, um, you can see similarities to the uh, military-style policing in the occupied territories of Palestine to what you see in Paris. Uh, okay, so let's just uh, have a quick look at this video clip and then we'll talk about it. So Vanessa, I've seen uh, video footage of, of protests in Paris in the last couple of days uh, with tens of thousands of people out to protest the cost of living and so on. Uh, and it seemed to be quite peaceful, but clearly uh, the French uh, authorities really uh, determined to push forward with the same types of tactics that we saw with the Yellow Vest. Absolutely. Um, and I have to say that, you know, these are the tactics that are used are quite horrendous. I mean, from the kettling of people and the shutting down of escape routes from large areas where the people can be attacked with tear gas, if they then try to retaliate, they are um, effectively targeted by the what they call the LBD, the rubber bullets, um, which have been used to um, take out eyes and to cause serious injury to people when used at close range. They're not actually supposed to be used for this. The um, humiliation of women on the protest that I went on, women were telling me that when they were cattled in these large areas, like the Place de la République and under attack, if they needed to go to the toilet, they were told they had to do it sur place, uh, where they were. So they had to effectively go to the toilet in front of the police. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a humiliation campaign. Um, there is no mercy given when one protest I was on, a guy collapsed, an elderly guy actually collapsed, and the police lines wouldn't even allow uh, the pompier, the fire brigade, to come in to take his body out. I mean, he wasn't dead, but he was obviously suffering some kind of seizure, and the police prevented um, the first responders entering. So, you know, this is a level of brutality and state-sanctioned violence that has been in existence in France, as I said, since the Gilets Jaunes began. Um, and it's certainly not abating. It's, it's, um, it, it's quite horrendous that in the democratic, civilized, in inverted commas, West, we are seeing this level of brutality. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, move on then. Mm -hmm. Now, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, or you could pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but please do share the various material that you find on the platforms. Uh, okay, Vanessa, let's move on then to, to Israel. And uh, uh, where did you want to start with this? Um, well, if we start with um, my substack, which is I basically took the information that had been published at Haaretz behind a paywall, sadly, 
um, regarding Israel's secret biological warfare during the 1948 ethnic cleansing of Palestine, better known as the Nakba. Um, there were two Haaretz articles. The first, um, I think, was on the 8th of October, Israel's secret poisonings in 1948. They also go into some depth about the attempted assassination um, of Khaled Mashal, the leader of Hamas. Um, it was effectively a bungled operation by Mossad to try and um, assassinate him by poison. Um, and then the second article came out uh, more recently, um, placed the material in the wells, which is effectively the typhus bacteria that leads to typhoid breakouts. Um, the documents point to Israeli army's 1948 biological warfare. For decades, rumors and testimonies swirled about Jewish troops sent to poison wells in Arab villages during the Nakba. Um, and now researchers have located official documentation of the Kastai bread operation. Um, the, uh, the information actually came from um, two researchers, Benny Morris and Benjamin Kedar. Um, this is the actual abstract to their own um, article, which is published up at, I can't remember the name, I think it's the Middle East Institute. Um, and effectively what it does is it describes Israel's bacteriological warfare campaign during, they describe it as the first Arab-Israeli war, I would describe it as the Nakba, the um, ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Um, over the decades following that war, rumors circulated that Israel had used bacteria alongside conventional weaponry. Um, and according to their research and um, what they have published, and it's worth noting that Israeli security uh, and governmental agencies have tried to prevent this information coming out. The code name, as we said, was Cast Thy Bread, taken from a verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and according to the research, scientists from the scientific corps in collaboration with military units were involved in a systematic campaign to poison water wells with typhoid bacteria to ethnically cleanse Palestinian population and to frighten them into abandoning their land. Who was involved in this? Um, David Ben-Gurion, um, largely known as the founder of the Jewish state in the occupied territories. Um, what I would like to draw attention to in 1937, Ben-Gurion wrote in his diary explaining the benefits of the compulsory population transfer, which was proposed by the British Peel Commission. The compulsory transfer of the Palestinian Arabs from the valleys of the proposed Jewish state could give us something which we never had. Even when we stood on our own during the days of the first and second temples, we are given an opportunity which we never dreamed, dared to dream of in our wildest imaginings. This is more than a state government and sovereignty. This is national consolidation in a free homeland, a free homeland um, that is only uh, able to be seized through the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian indigenous um, people. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Moshe Dayan was also involved. He was actually effectively the distributor of the vials and test tubes of the typhoid bacteria, which he then um, distributed to his troops to poison the wells with. Uh, again, I will go back to another quote from Moshe Dayan. <laughs> in Haifa in 1969, 
Jewish villages were built in the place of Arab villages. You do not even know the names of these Arab villages, and I do not blame you because geography books no longer exist. Not only do the books not exist, the Arab villages are not there either. Remember, this is 1969, so 20 years after the Nakba. Nahlal rose in the place of Mahlul, etc., and then he names the various um, Israeli names given to formerly uh, Arab villages. There is not one single place built in this country that did not have a former Arab population. What is also interesting is that Ilan Pape, who wrote The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, one of the um, foremost uh, books talking about the Nakba and laying out the history of what happened, um, if we play the video, he actually talks about the poisoning of the wells. Of course, he was pilloried um, for suggesting that Israel was using biological warfare even in 1948. Now it appears that he is vindicated by Israeli researchers. But it imposed on itself. The Israeli troops poisoned the water of Akka, of Acre, in order to make the city surrender. And the Red Cross reported this uh, uh, to the United Nations. Uh, one of the reasons that it got known was that there were still some British doctors working in the hospital in Akka who themselves got the typhus out of this uh, uh, poisoning uh, act. Uh, and uh, Israel apologized and, and so on. But, uh, and this, by the way, again, happened before the 15th of May. Um, it's very interesting, in the 1990s, an Israeli reporter uh, interviewed the two Israeli troops, uh, soldiers, who uh, injected the typhus into the water. I don't know if anybody of you have been in Akka. Akka's water supply comes from an aqueduct, a Roman aqueduct, uh, which is still there. It was the main supply. So the water goes into the old city in the open, so you can easily poison it. Um, and two soldiers, apparently, who felt very bad about it many, many years later, after I wrote it in my book, uh, uh, gave an interview to Yediot Achronot, which is an Israeli daily, and admitted that they were the ones who, who put the, the poison. And I think that that was, for me, an, a moment of epiphany only in the sense that it didn't shock anyone in Israel. I mean, nobody denied it, nobody said anything about it. Said, okay, so you poisoned some, some people, so what? Uh, that, that, that also explained to me this uh, sense of uh, commitment that I felt when I wrote my books on 48 and why my colleagues didn't have a similar sense of commitment. Maybe they didn't think there was something terribly wrong with poisoning the water of a city. For me, I don't know how you feel about it, but for me, it's a horrific crime. Horrible. It's a horrible thing to do, even in war. Uh, in war, you don't poison people's. Uh... Yeah, extraordinary that someone would try to excuse uh, the use of biological warfare even in uh, a war situation, and it certainly wasn't a war situation. Actually, a, a British engineer, largely, Ord Wingate, the general who was responsible for the training of the Haganah, the um, 
the uh, Israeli secret military police and forces that were responsible for the ethnic cleansing. That's another subject, and it's certainly worth getting into another time. But let's look at what Israel is doing now. Has anything changed between 1948 and now? If we look at Gaza, um, an area where I've spent considerable time both under Israeli bombing and during peacetime, although it's rare that the people of Gaza can benefit from any kind of, of calm or lack of aggression from Israel. <clears throat> um, and I can attest to the fact that it's, it's an area of land the size of the Isle of Wight with, I think, now more than two million people living in that area. 97% um, of Gaza's drinking water is contaminated by sewage or salt. Israel also controls all of the entry of food, um, water, all uh, essential resources to the people of Gaza. At one point, um, the, the food that was allowed in um, was basically they were being given less than 2,000 calories a day per head. Um, according to Israeli calculations. Um, the reason that the aquifers basically, because they're over-pumping to cope with demand, what effectively happens is that there are huge drops in the aquifer level. Seawater penetrates up to four or five kilometers. But not only that, um, so the, the water is heavily salinated, ending in high levels of chloride. Um, the acceptable level is 250 milligrams. In Gaza, there's measurements between 400 to 2,000 milligrams. So this is effectively toxic. Not only that, because of the damage to the aquifers and, and the low water levels, sewage is also entering the water, and there is high level of nitrates whenever the water is an analyzed, which uh, uh, indicates contamination. Israel itself is dumping millions of liters of sewage into the sea um, close to the Gazan coast. There is a huge problem of um, pollution in the, in the sea itself, which is the only area of escape for people um, from the city to some kind of um, respite on the beaches. But the sea itself is, is incredibly dangerous for the Gazan people. And of course, the fishing... <coughs> And uh, I'm afraid we've uh, we've lost Vanessa. Patrick, have you got any thoughts on this? Uh, no, not that. Uh, not anything to add other than um, you know this is well documented history. Um, these are things that have been reported uh, many times uh, by many media outlets over the years. But um, certainly, this isn't a popular subject uh, for mainstream discussion uh, when one's talking about cruelty. Uh, or acts of aggression, the sort of rhetoric that's being ramped up uh, against Russia uh, to sort of demonize uh, their military intervention in the Donbass. Uh, you could point to so many examples, egregious examples of uh, uh, war crimes and human rights violations uh, by the uh, regime, to use that uh, loaded term, which I think is appropriate if we're going to be using it. You could definitely use it to, de to describe the Israeli regime. Uh, they've been acting with impunity uh, and with carte blanche, with the West supporting them, mainly the U.S. and Britain supporting them uh, on with unwaveringly uh, from the beginning. So um, I think that's uh, putting things into perspective a little bit.
Yeah, and uh, let's uh, look at what's going on with Iran as well, because we pointed out that uh, Russia using Iranian combat drones in Ukraine was the uh, headline from the UK government a couple of days ago. Uh, UK government now has decided that they're going to sanction uh, Iran over that, over so-called kamikaze drones. This is what uh, uh, James Cleverly had to say. Iran's support for Putin's brutal and illegal war against Ukraine is deplorable. Today, we're sanctioning those who have supplied the drones used by Russia to target Ukrainian civilians. This is clear evidence of Iran's destabilizing role in global security. Uh, and who have they sanctioned? Uh, well, a number of military people. Uh, we've got uh, Hussein Bagheri, the uh, chairman of the Armed Forces General Staff, uh, Brigadier General Saeed uh, Qureshi, who's the key Iranian negotiator in the deal that has provided Russia with the Iranian-produced drones, they say, uh, and a couple of other uh, key military personnel and so on. Uh, this is uh, uh, Patrick, uh, you know, uh, Let's just let's just use economic sanctions. Let's use economic warfare on everybody around the world at the moment. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, it's it's still it's still a double standard because uh, look at the amount of weapons uh, that are being plowed uh, into that war zone right now uh, by by NATO countries and uh, to to basically they're they're using this situation with Iranian drones and to, also we don't have you know, total documentation of what's actually being claimed um, by the West um, and, and how it's being framed. We don't really have full documentation of this. We just have statements mainly coming out of the U.S. Um, and U.S. intelligence and U.S. media are amplifying this uh, right now. But certainly, uh, if you're talking about the use of uh, UAVs or uh, lethal weapons, uh, or targeting civilians uh, is an example. Uh, if you want to talk about war crimes in that sense, um, it, based on what I've looked at and what others have looked at, um, the preponderance of war crimes uh, in this conflict um, are definitely on the side of the Ukrainian uh, military. Um, we can look at the use of human shields as a policy uh, in places like Mariupol, for instance, uh, in other areas and but, but Pat, uh, Patrick, let me let me just interrupt you there for a second because it is that policy a Ukrainian policy or bearing in mind we've seen that same policy in Syria as well has somebody suggested to the Ukrainians they might want to use that policy I can't imagine where they would have got that idea Mike uh, so it's like and, and sabotage and blowing things up and underwater demolition who does that sort of uh, thing you know not not the U.S. or Britain, certainly not the SAS. Uh, they're not. They never get involved in those things. They're the good guys, right? So, so couldn't have come from NATO, Mike. I'm being very facetious and yes. uh, yeah, cynical no, there, but it, it's a it's a it's a fair point. Uh, uh, but my point was, we've seen it so much in Syria, particularly the use of civ civilian uh, infrastructure for military purposes by the uh, rebels there. Yeah, yeah. So the, the the whole idea of the quote kamikaze drone. Again, we don't know the extent or the 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 exact uh, context of how these uh, weapons are are being used. They're they're claiming they're hitting apartment blocks, and so all, all this reporting about all these sort of anecdotal reporting or uh, inflammatory uh, stories about civilians or apartment blocks being targeted. That's what basically gets the whole thing going. In the West, it's maternity wards, hospitals, schools. Uh, getting those stories out then uh, 
triggers the sort of righteous indignation and the sort of the outrage machine that the Western media can can then uh, kick into high gear. Uh, and then later we find out when we actually get the facts later, it's always a, a totally different story than what was initially reported. And if you if you're believing Western intelligence assessments or U.S. intelligence assessments on anything like this, um, it's yeah, that's kind of a ridiculous source. It's been proven to be anyway uh, in so many of these different uh, uh, instances. But you know, like, what's the difference between if there if there was a kamikaze drone? What's the difference between that and Ukrainians using NATO weapons uh, to to fire grad rockets at civilians in Donetsk or uh, various missiles or sort of modified Scud missiles or whatever they're they're throwing uh, at uh, Donetsk and Lugansk? What's well, the difference? Well, I'll, I'll tell you really? what the difference is. The difference is that Russia paid for those drones, whereas Ukraine didn't pay for anything. They were handed over. But aside from that, I don't see any difference. Well, look, let's let's move yeah. over to the United States uh, and the midterm uh, elections, Patrick. Sure. So the the midterm elections are in, in full gear now. It's going to be two weeks, November eighth. That's the big day. This is going to be one of the most consequential elections uh, in memory. It's uh, uh, for for the Democrats. It's it's survival. Uh, for the Biden administration as well, this this will be an ominous result, uh, and everybody is also on sort of uh, tender hooks because nobody knows how the uh, votes are going to be counted. As as many people know, much to the dismay of the media, half the country do not believe that the uh, results of the 2020 elections were transparent, free, and fair. Um, so there's a lot of questions and a lot of distrust uh, in the whole sort of electronic voting industrial complex and accounting apparatuses at the local and precinct level here. So the the, the, the Russian element is already creeping in to the conversation. So this is uh, Rick Newman, who's a senior columnist at Yahoo, saying how the Russians are disrupting the U.S. elections. And you just have to look at the actual claims. Make I mean, there's he's saying here that this is not mere collateral damage the unintended economic consequence of military action. Russian President Vladimir Putin actually practices what strategists call hybrid war. So he's saying that Russia's uh, waging a hybrid war against the United States to influence the outcome of the elections uh, because somehow, uh, in this quote here, that somehow President Biden is an obvious target for Putin given that the United States is a leading donor of military gear and other types of aid to Ukraine. And, and again, repeating, rehashing the talking point, reinforcing the mythology that Putin famously meddled in the 2016 presidential election on Donald Trump's behalf, uh, not because Putin is a closet Republican, but because Trump's opponent, Hillary Clinton, was a Russian hawk. There's there's still pushing this, uh, this line. So it's really kind of sad. This is kind of like codified propaganda that a lot of the mainstream media, they keep wheeling out. You'll see a lot of reports about Russian hacks or Russian hacking. You'll see tons of Russian reports. So if the Democrats are screaming election denial, and for anybody that questions or wants to interrogate uh, any of the election processes, anything related to the last election, um, but when when it comes to uh, their sort of rhetoric on this, it's completely weaponized. They'll wheel out all of the, the various Russian talking points. And they're doing it already. And I think that's going to intensify uh, as as the days go 
forward uh, in the run-up to the election. So, but Biden is absolutely panicking, went over to Saudi Arabia, as you know, a couple months ago, begging, begging the Saudis to increase oil production. He went and did the same thing cap in hand with OPEC, as we reported previously. And the OPEC countries had already made their decision. And it, Saudi is very canny. They released a statement this week, an official statement saying that uh, basically uh, saying that the U.S. had asked them to wait on announcement for production uh, cuts until after the midterm elections. So the Saudis were saying this is total politicization of, of, of OPEC and we don't do that. And this is purely based on economic uh, reasons and so forth. So what's, what's Biden gone and done because of the embarrassment of that, he's gone and looted the strategic petroleum reserves again. So another, I don't know, 15 uh, million barrels or something like that, um, throwing that on the open market, uh, thinking that that's going to drop the price at the pump before the midterms. I mean, talk about desperation, but this isn't what you do with your strategic petroleum reserves. This is not, uh, this is a crisis. There's a crisis on, but it's a crisis of government's making. So the government can't go and then, or a party can't go, or a president can't go and loot the strategic petroleum reserves in order to get a bounce in the polls and the run-up to election. That's exactly what's going on here. And you don't see the media is not really decrying it. Now, imagine if Trump did this. Imagine if Donald Trump did this. You'd, all hell would break loose and you would never hear the end of it. So this is what Biden's doing. It's pretty unbelievable. It's the second time he's dipped in. So the strategic petroleum reserves are at the lowest point in something like 50 years, almost. So, or since since the 1980s, basically. So, and, so I, I really, words cannot describe what's going on here. So total desperation. And they're, they're afraid they're going to lose the House and the Senate as a result of this. And if the Democrats lose the House and the Senate, of course, they're going to blame. Someone's going to have to be thrown under the bus. So Biden's going to become Liz Truss. Um, probably at least the Democrats will be ready to hit the eject button and they'll be talking about his replacement. And, he, and then the health thing and the 25th Amendment, all of that will start coming out before Christmas. So there'll be a mad race if they lose the House um, and the Senate, or even if they just lose the House, because that means impeachment hearings are coming um, in the new year. That absolutely depends on what those impeachment hearings are going to be. But here's uh, one of the big pieces of news here that's really made waves, and it sends shockwaves through the Democrats. Tulsi Gabbard has announced that she's leaving the Democratic Party, and very publicly and uh, incredible, her her PR machine is unbelievable. Um, she managed to get massive national traction on this story. And what she said in her statement that she put out is pretty stunning. Um, she's come right out swinging. Uh, so she's accused the Democrats of uh, dividing the country and radicalizing it on every issue, stoking anti-white racism, actively working to undermine our God-given freedoms enshrined in our Constitution. Strong words, especially from a Democrat. She's saying the Democrats of today are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, and they demonize the police and protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans. And she's not done there. Um, so she's saying that the Democrats of today believe in open borders and weaponize the national security state to go after political opponents, like the, using the FBI, for instance, uh, and above all else, the Democrats 
of today are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. So imagine she managed to deliver all of this uh, through the funnel of her announcement that she's leaving the Democratic Party. So I'm in this. I'm in an important swing state at the moment, Arizona, and there's a. The, this has probably got one of the biggest sort of um, potential swings here um, in in the comp- upcoming election. Tulsi Gabbard came down to. Uh, I went to an event where she came down to endorse the uh, Republican governor candidate Carrie Lake uh, in in Chandler. It's not far from where I am, and uh, it was kind of an incredible event. It was well attended. Uh, and the crowd was really enthusiastic. Um, so there's Tulsi. So that's a former Democrat stumping for the most in, uh, the most controversial uh, governor candidate in the country. So K- Carrie Lake is absolutely making waves. She's now become a kind of a national subject uh, for the Democrats of scorn. They're attacking her uh, on every side, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, so there's Tulsi Gabbard gave her a ringing endorsement. So she's She's, she's invited quite a few people to come down. There's people coming from all over the country. Glenn Youngkin from Virginia, the governor of Virginia, he's come down. So they share a lot of the same uh, issues that people are really that are driving voters, which are things like um, groom the, the sort of uh, gender uh, uh, curriculum stuff that's being ejected into schools, parents being kicked out of school board meetings, the FBI being weaponized using counterterrorism measures to uh, go after parents uh, who are attending school board meetings, these sort of things that uh, the Virginia governor is pushing back against. He's flown out here to basically support Carrie Lake uh, this week as well. So Tulsi has m- made a huge impact here. Certainly that was sent a big message. So independence will swing to Carrie Lake. So this is what this is how the media is attacking her. So this is the AP. So they're calling her and everyone who's asks any questions about any election results, an election denier. And uh, they're scared because g- up for grabs right now is the governor's seat, the secretary of state in Arizona, and the attorney general. All of those are sort of young or youngish Republicans. The the, the attorney general, Abe Hamaday, he, I think he's, uh, he's very young, sort of in his late 20s or early 30s, um, incredibly young. He'll be the youngest AG in the U.S. history since Bill Clinton in Arkansas. And he's a constitutionalist. He's a sort of a Ron Paul type person. And so that they could reform election, uh, the election processes in this state. And Arizona has become like one of the key battleground states for the national general election. So with 2024 coming up, this is a high stakes game. This is what they're saying here about Kari Lake. This is how they're framing her, uh, <laughs> her um, in transience. So when you have this is what Kari's saying here. When you have a stolen, uh, corrupt elections, uh, you have serious consequences, even deadly consequences, she's saying. She's, she, they pulled this quote from uh, during the primary in June. And unfortunately, we had a stolen election, uh, and we actually have an illegitimate president sitting in the White House. That So she's leading in the polls right now. Her opponent is Democrat. She won't debate, won't come out for a debate, avoiding debates now. They've tried. It's not happening. So, uh, and this is what Kari Lake has said about the 2020 election, and she's leading. So that shows you where the people are in Arizona on this issue and other states, Um, even though the media is basically demonizing and running the January 6th uh, show trial committees and all the rest of it. And so if you have people who are supportive of the big lie, says 
uh, Jim Barton. He's a Democratic election attorney in Arizona. The big lie. So they AP uses this term, the big lie, and they capitalize it. So this this idea has been branded. This is the sort of uh, deep state Democrat um, a campaign, public relations campaign, to basically try to ward off any criticisms of uh, any of the election results by calling it the big lie. If you if, that you're somehow punting the big lie, if you question the 2020 election, for instance, and so they they branded it. So this is not. It's, it's kind of sad. It's not. It's definitely not journalism. AP is kind of. It should at least put it in quotes. But anyway, they've they've sort of formalized it. Um, and so they're basically they're they're saying that Kari Lake, um, the AG, if these Republicans get in, they could quietly somehow uh, you know change the election processes and make it undemocratic or something ridiculous like this. So here's here's what Kari Lake uh, said about when she, the, the press are hounding her about this election denial uh, everywhere she goes. She's a former news anchor, so she knows how the media works. She's very confident. And she comes out and goes directly after them. They're calling her Trump in high heels. So they're, the media are positively frightened uh, by this woman. But watch this clip as she handles the media on this election denial uh, accusation. You're going to start throwing around terms like election denier. Let's remember who the other election deniers were. Hillary Clinton and all the Democrats. Next question. The question is, you over the weekend, everybody, you took the Google all over the world. Your name was ringing everywhere. And one of them, yes, ma'am, because I have the scale. And one of them has, and most of them were asking, is she a, 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 an election denier, Carrie Lee? And that was like, like going around on all different cable news. What do you elaborate on this? I'm actually shocked you asked that question, George. <laughs> well, actually, Anthony, where's Anthony? Once in a while. <laughs> Here, Anthony. You know, I, I did a little, actually, Anthony. Anthony, how old are you? 20. Are you a journalist? No. Well, you did better research than half these people. Um, let's talk about election deniers. Here's 150 examples of Democrats denying election results. Oh, wow, look at this. This is from... This is from uh, Joe Biden's press secretary. Reminder, Brian Kemp stole the gubernatorial election from Georgians and Stacey Abrams. Democrats saying that. Is that an election denier? Oh, look at this. Just heard Republican Ryan Costello said it would be difficult for Stacey Abrams to win because she lost her state bid, but yet she's still claiming she never lost. This is outright Hillary Clinton. Trump is an illegitimate president. Is she an election denier? This one says, was the 2016 election legitimate? It now definitely is a question worth asking. That's the Los Angeles Times. So it's okay for Democrats to question elections, but it's not okay for Republicans. It's a crock of BS. Every one of you knows it. We have our freedom of speech, and we're not going to relinquish it to a bunch of fake news propagandists. If you want a copy of these, I'm sure that we're, Anthony would help you get a copy and help you learn how to be journalists, but look it up. It's been happening for a long time. Since 2000, people have questioned the legitimacy of our elections. And all we're asking is that in the future, we don't have that have to happen anymore. Okay. When I'm governor, excuse me, when I'm governor, we're going to make sure we have honest elections. We want the Democrats, the independents, and the Republicans to all know that their vote counted. We want fair, 
honest and transparent elections, and we're going to deliver that for the people. So, so because of this, uh, uh, Liz Cheney um, uh, is, is coming after. Uh, she's she's campaigning for the Democrat candidate. She's a Republican, Dick Cheney's daughter, and they they brought out all the big guns against uh, Carrie Lake. So, um, and, and now the uh, the other issue, and this is from the uh, the event I attended um, on Tuesday evening on the 18th. So they asked her about vaccines. So not only is she an election denier, but she's an anti-vaxxer now as well. But what she said about vaccines is something that you will not hear from any other uh, politician, mainstream politician, pretty much in the country. Um, and somehow um, she's basically still on her feet on this issue and she's remained uh, on the attack on this issue. I'm going to play this clip. And this is this is the press uh, moment just after she did her uh, rally forum with Tulsi Gabbard, but listen closely to what she says here because it's quite incredible. So from Tucker Carlson, he says the CDC is about to mandate the vaccine for children to attend school. Is that something you support? Absolutely not. We will never allow that in Arizona. This is an experimental shot. Our children are not guinea pigs. And we're not going to have incidents of myocarditis in our young, precious children. We will fight that with every fiber in our being. We're not going to have this force shot by the CDC, which has their tentacles in big pharma. And I'm going to fight that. This is an experimental shot. And we're seeing injuries from this vaccine. And we're not going to force our precious, healthy children to get a shot that is already proving to be not only ineffective, it's also proving to be dangerous. Next question. Well, we'll be coming onto the issue of vaccines again in a second, Patrick, but that's quite a, a fantastic statement. Is this the start of a, of a break here or is she absolutely standing on her own on this? Uh, I think I think there's something going on here because uh, you know I I didn't expect to see who I saw at that event in attendance. Like it, there was there weren't it wasn't the QAnon MAGA crowd. Um, it, these, these are all very well turned out young uh, Republicans. These are serious people. There's another young U.S. Senate candidate, uh, Blake Masters, who's going against the incumbent Mark Kelly, uh, and so you know the, and these are all people that are very strong on. Uh, constitutional issues, small, smaller government, um, civil liberties. Uh, so that, and and some of them are also talking non-intervention. You have to remember what kind of influence someone like Tulsi Gabbard is going to have on someone like Carrie Lake uh, on the foreign policy side. I think you're looking at potentially, if she's successful, she could be the future of the Republican Party in the United States. So this will be a very pivotal election. So it's going to be it's probably going to come right down to the wire. There's probably going to be vote counting uh, a controversy. I just predict all of these things are going to happen. But I don't see any or see any energy or excitement or any. She's Katie Hobbs, her Democratic opponent, opponent is not even campaign practically campaigning. She's almost doing a basement campaign. I guess it's so polarized. They just think they're going to get all their Democrat votes and they're somehow going to win by the numbers. Um, so this will be very interesting. So I'm hoping to, uh, you know, witness this firsthand and see how this very important election is going to pan out on November 8th. So, but I think you're seeing something, Mike, here. They're talking about issues and about, and they're, and they're talking about issues in a way that we're talking about issues on this program. 
And that's pretty unusual. And this is not a, a fringe thing in Arizona. This is a, um, it, this is a significant part of the state's conversation. There's a lot of people who are on board with what she's saying, and they're supporting her, and they're supporting her in a very big way. So I think there's this, there's something going here that I think is potentially uh, really important going forward politically in the U.S. Okay, brilliant. Thank you for that. Now let's come back to the U.K. and some uh, economic news. Uh, so uh, what is the situation? A uh, number of announcements today. First of all, we've got the Office for National Statistics saying that uh, retail sales falling in September after a week August. Uh, the week August uh, was, I suppose, or it's part of this is the, the, uh, the, the funeral of the Queen and so on, apparently is let, fed into this a little bit. But nonetheless, uh, consum- consumers now buying less than before the pandemic. Uh, drops were seen across all major areas of retailing with falling sales. And this is probably the biggest part of it, falling sales in food stores, making the largest contribution. So the price of food uh, clearly having an impact. Uh, in the meantime, the uh, uh, FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, saying that 7.8 million people are already finding it hard to keep up with bills. Uh, 25% of UK adults in financial difficulty uh, or could be if they suffered a kind of financial shock. Uh, and 4.2 million people uh, have already missed bills or loan payments. But in the meantime, what about the government? Is it missing any loan payments? Well, certainly gathering up plenty of debt. Uh, hasn't decided to miss any loan payments just yet. But if we look at uh, September on the right-hand side there, uh, was at about £20 billion in that month alone. And then if we look at uh, the government debt uh, historically, uh, and this is as a proportion of GDP, uh, and we draw the line across, well, in fact, we're now carrying levels of debt that we haven't seen uh, since about 1963 or so. Um, so, uh, Patrick, the, the, uh, the financial situation continues to uh, tank. Um, uh, debt levels continue to rise. Uh, I'm sure it's not any different in the United States. Yeah, no, it's not. It's well, the U.S. is uh, used to keeping high debt to GDP ratios Um, for Britain. This is like a new sort of era for Britain. So uh, normally the British, you don't see that 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 type of gap, you know, 100 or 120 or 130. Who knows where the ceiling is on this um, for the U.K.? But they, they've they've backed themselves into a huge corner here, um, and it's a result of what the the mad money printing from COVID. Um, you can't wind the clock back on that, unfortunately, and it's having an effect on the currency as well. Um, in the U.S., they're they're propping up the dollar um, by r- raising interest rates. There's going to be a couple more rate rises, but the real the bigger geopolitical picture on this uh, from a U.S standpoint is that the u.s is able to basically get um, more countries in debt because a lot of countries had uh, taken massive amounts of of loans out or uh, filled up their dollar accounts because the interest rates have been so low for so long so now that with the rate rise the fed is able to basically trigger another round of borrowing because people need to borrow to pay off um, um the the previous debt so there's this a compounding debt problem. I'm talking internationally with all the countries that keep uh, dollar reserves in their dollar accounts. So this is one of the ways how the U.S. Uh, manages its um, financial uh, imperial empire uh, globally, and is through the Federal Reserve interest rates. This is a very powerful tool that the U.S. has to create dependency 
on the U.S. dollar and uh, debt levels. And they're able to enforce that through things like the sanctions or through military traditionally. So you can see how U.S. power is, it's a, it's a tandem between military preponderance and financial preponderance. You can't, you need both. You can't have one or the other. That's the secret to the, how the U.S. Um, uh, still manages to be um, the, the sort of global hegemon in that sense. But obviously they have a lot more competition now than they did um, 30 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let's come back onto health issues then and vaccines. And who is asking? Are they really safe and effective? Well, we're all still asking. <laughs> we're all still asking. So the the vaccine issue is they, they got a huge problem in in the U.S. The uptake is very low now, um, but they're really pushing it really hard and aggressively. And I have to look at this announcement, and it really just says it all right here. Pfizer. This is from Nasdaq. Pfizer expecting to raise the cost. Uh, to between 110 to 130 dollars per dose, so that that's what they're charging here. So why is this? Um, there's a couple of reasons for this. Let's look at what they're saying here. The U.S. government are currently providing that vaccine for free, okay, but it's only paying 30 dollars a dose to Pfizer and BioNTech. So that's basically corporate welfare. Uh, is guaranteed purchase orders from the government. Whether they, people get injected or not, the money gets paid to Pfizer and BioNTech. So that's good, solid sort of revenue stream for shareholders, right? So if, why are they raising it and why to this degree? Well, there's one of the reasons is this. In 2023, the market is expected to move to private insurance after the U.S. public health emergency expires. So this is the whole thing about the state of emergency or the government not saying that the quote, the pandemic is over um, because there's reason, there's financial reasons for this behind the scenes. So you have to read between the lines on this. This is one of the things that's driving this business interest. Uh, this, this detail is what's driving U.S. policy on declaring a pandemic. So you can see how the, the machine works here. Um, so that's, the, that's what's going on on that side with uh, with Pfizer. And uh, furthermore, Pfizer said it expects the COVID-19 market to be about the size of the flu shot market uh, on an annual basis for adults. Um, nothing like the levels of penetration, no pun intended, um, market penetration that they've had um, during the so-called crisis uh, over the last three years. So the, the, this is going to be about the size of the flu market, but, the, the, but that the pediatric market would uh, take longer to build uh, based on shots given so far, they're expecting the demand to drop even further. That's why they're raising the price. So this is why you're seeing this on Nasdaq.com uh, because obviously this is an investment or investor story here. So that's pretty incredible. But you can see where the money is on this. Uh, and furthermore, Wall Street is expecting such price hikes due to the weak COVID vaccine demand. So that's in Nasdaq.com. So weak demand. So they're having to push this. So how would how's the government going to deal with this problem of a weak demand for COVID-19 shots? Well, the answer is simple. Uh, and the same week you hear this announcement, you see this announcement here. COVID-19 vaccines will be on the 2023 vaccine schedule, but that does not mean they're required for schools. What is the, the vaccine schedule? This is the list of uh, all these different shots that uh, uh, states are are requiring or the CDC is recommending that children get all these various injections. 
And it's really important that if you can get the vaccine on the list, uh, what they call the vaccine schedule for children, there's actually a loophole uh, on this. And Robert F. Kennedy, Children's Health Defense, have pointed this out for a very long time. That keeps the emergency use authorization uh, in place through this loophole for all COVID-19 vaccines. So this, ho this whole sort of um, laissez-faire regulatory clinical trial free-for-all that we've seen because under the emergency use authorization, this, this environment continue now because they've managed to get this product on the children's vaccine schedule. It's a bit of a loophole, but that's how the system works here. So this is what they're saying. This is CNN Health, the COVID-19 vaccines are expand from being included in school mandates in at least 20 states. That's interesting. Only California and Washington, D.C. have announced that the shots will be mandated vaccines for students. So those are two authoritarian uh, centers in the United States, California and the District of Columbia. Um, but those mandates will not be in, implemented for the coming school year. So there'll be very little pushback because those are almost exclusively uh, Democrat uh, voting zones, California and Washington, uh, D.C. here. And this is interesting. The COVID-19 vaccines um, are, are banned in 20 states. So that's that shows you that there's a big difference in attitudes of um, how these products are going to be administered and required and so forth. So, And this is, of course, a very interesting story here. The U.S. Coast Guard, which is one of the branches of the U.S. military, um, what it was doing to all of its uh, uh, service people who uh, wanted to get a religious exemption or a medical waiver for the vaccine. They used the AI uh, to basically do a standard reply to basically uh, cancel out any uh, applications for exemptions. Look at this, the US Coast Guard used an automated system to mass deny nearly 99% of religious accommodation requests seeking COVID vaccine uh, exemptions. The religious accommodation uh, applicants received blanket denial letters that lawmakers alleged uh, were created by a form tool that automatically generated a predetermined reason why that argument was insufficient to overcome denial. The software generated this pre-written response uh, on one of 25 possible arguments religious accommodation applicants could make. So they basically used an AI um, algorithm piece of software um, to basically administer mass uh, rejections of any uh, of this service people who wanted uh, to have exemptions for the mandatory COVID-19 vaccine. Huge scandal. Obviously, the, these are not, the Democrat committee didn't dig this up. Unfortunately, it was just the Republican committee. So, but the polio, now the, the latest scare, and it's one of many scares will be the polio um, scare. And there's just some incredible uh, stuff going on in the media. In New York, they're trying to say this is the center of a polio epidemic. They're trying to say polio's back. And so let's look at this video clip from CNN. This pretty much is an unbelievable piece of yeah, news so, here. Sorry, Patrick, we, we, uh, we don't have that video. I do apologize. We don't have that. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, well, so anyway, the yeah, this the this the the CNN video. They found one polio case um, in New York, and uh, from that one polio case, they've extrapolated that they're blaming the anti-vaxxers uh, for this. They're saying that there's an 
it's, it's the, the the strongholds of anti-vaxxers, and they're looking at vaccine levels in different counties, and they're saying these are anti-vax counties because they have a low amount of COVID vaccine um, and or polio vaccine, so therefore they're responsible for this quote at one case polio alleged case of New York. So they're coming right and weaponizing this talking point. And here's a good uh, piece of research by uh, William F. William Engdahl, who did some great work uh, on this issue of polio and virology. And if you go to uh, 21st Century Wire, you can also get this from um, Sam Bailey's uh, Odyssey channel. And she basically did a presentation of William F. William Engdahl's work um, on polio. Um, so this is an incredible piece of research by William. Uh, I think in, in terms of what's out there, on this subject, I think this is the best or the highest level of quality work. He's really focusing on the Rockefeller Institute, the Flexner Report, and the takeover of the American Medical Association. Um, so, and showing how this has basically brought us to where we were in terms of modern medicine, allergic medicine. Flexner, uh, basically, the Flexner Report, hired by Rockefeller, used fraudulent experiments um, basically to push this in the polio epidemic and the corruption of the American Medical Association, um, and also uh, how the Rockefellers controlled the polio narrative. There's very little actual evidence of polio as a sort of uh, uh, actual individual sort of virus on the loose. The research goes right back to the early 20th century. We still use that as the foundational pillars uh, for proving the existence or the, the, the threat of polio, for instance. So, and they've managed to have this kind of global vaccine program since then for decades and decades uh, on, on this polio, supposed polio epidemic. So the level of fraud, according to this research, is pretty unbelievable. Um, so that's, that's what's in this report. It's a pretty incredible. Um, and it, it, sh it also talks about the real causes of what the symptoms of polio polyomyelitis. Uh, and it shows the correlation between the introduction of DDT as a household uh, chemical. And funny enough, they, they even said DDT, uh, you needed to use it in your home to sanitize, to protect you against polio. William's making the argument that it is the DDT that is responsible for the polio symptoms and the, uh, the, ner the nerve disease um, as a result of toxic poisoning and not the polio. Pretty incredible stuff. But if you read this and look at the research, it's actually, it, it looks like it, it would stand up to scrutiny. Uh, okay, well, uh, uh, thanks for that, Patrick. Now, I'm interested in getting your thoughts on this very briefly. Uh, we, we obviously showed the latest uh, all-cause mortality statistics from the Office for National Statistics uh, uh, earlier in the week. Um, and, uh, you know, we've been talking about this issue of uh, excess deaths uh, since, uh, particularly this period since January 2022, and the fact that nobody apparently has any explanation for what's causing it, uh, and nobody really doing any particular investigation. Now, that was on Wednesday, I think. Uh, today, uh, the Office for National T Statistics has produced some more, uh, their monthly report on this. And I wanted to highlight this graph here. Um, now, the dark blue bars are um, excess deaths compared to the average, uh, the five-year average that was used uh, up until the end of 2021, uh, which was a five-year average based on deaths between 2015 and 2019, because at that time they were saying we don't want to uh, have the five-year average influenced by deaths that were attributed to COVID-19. 
Uh, and then the light blue bars are compared to the average that's used today, um, which is from 2016 to 2019 plus 2021, missing out 2020. So they don't include 2020 in the five-year average that they use today. Um, and uh, as you can see, we get two slightly different uh, numbers uh, as a result, because obviously the five-year average changes. Uh, now, what's uh, particularly fascinating is the column at the very right-hand side. So that's showing for each month of the year up until the end of September. But the last, uh, the last set of bars is the total uh, numbers of excess mortality from January until September. And what it's showing is that if you use the uh, older five-year average number, you get something like 18,000 excess deaths since the start of the year uh, and 25,000 excess deaths um, if you use the five-year average that they're using today. Uh, and uh, Patrick, this, this is uh, really, uh, to my mind, quite incredible because we're, obviously the, the number is going gonna, is gonna to lie somewhere in between those figures probably, but let's say it's 21, 22,000 excess deaths from January till September. Uh, and uh, nobody seems in the slightest bit concerned about it. Uh, we keep uh, uh, making this point, and I think it continues to need to be made uh, until uh, such times as the uh, willingness to consider vaccines as the cause uh, is actually broke breaks into the mainstream. Yeah, certainly you can have a discussion about vaccines as a potential uh, cause of this uh, apparent spike in excess deaths. But there's also a, a, a number of other factors that could also feed into this as well. Uh, lack of access uh, to health or lack of access to early a number of uh, fatal ailments um, in, in this one and just, just basic medical uh, malpractice by uh, running people through the health system um, in, in COVID wards. Uh, and delaying their uh, treatments or surgeries or whatever because they got PCR swabbed uh, when they came into the hospital and they just basically triaged them and delayed whatever they would have had done uh, or, and so forth or blamed their symptoms on COVID, which happens to people uh, quite often as well. So there's all of these things together um, that are feeding. I, I just put one big banner, Mike, under this at this point. Um, is These are government, you could say these are government deaths. These are deaths as a result of government policy, of really just reckless, failed uh, policies by the state, panic policies, hysterical policies, and uh, money-oriented policies. I ju we just showed you the uh, absolute relationship between the government, their vaccine uh, policies, their regulations on vaccines, their mandate, and the pharmaceutical price structure. Okay, So you don't need much more evidence than this the direct relationship here, what's really driving these policies. So look at the excess deaths, I'm saying, uh, under the banner of government deaths. And yes. uh, so that, including vaccines. Yeah, I think that's uh, quite appropriate. Okay, well, look, we've got to leave it there for today. Thank you very much to Patrick and Vanessa for joining us. I'll be back in a couple of minutes with some extra. Uh, if you're not joining us for that, have a great weekend. And we'll see you at 1pm as usual on Monday. Bye bye.